Welcome back to Stay in Your Lane. I'm your host, John Maley, Triple T Transport. Uh, today, we've got one of my favorites. I have many favorites, but Dan North is very special. And uh, we're, we're pretty concerned in our industry about the inflation. Where's it going from here? Where's it heading? What's the impact? And now with the uh, reduction in oil capacity from OPEC, uh, being discussed for uh, in just a few days, uh, see the impact of, that that may have uh, overall, uh, maybe globally, but uh, for all of us here in the United States and all of you, our followers at uh, Triple T Transport. If you like this, uh, go ahead and click the like button. Uh, if you have any feedback or you have any questions or any subjects you want to talk about, feel free to ask. All right. And today I'm going to pass it over to Dan North. Uh, Chief Economist, North America for Allianz Trading, and we've had you on a few times, Dan. Go ahead and tell us what to what to watch out for. Okay, John, thanks very much. Um, I do want to give a couple of quick updates before we get into the energy situation. So I want to talk for just a second about the housing market because the housing market has been the re first real victim of the Federal Reserve actions. Um, and I'll show you what I mean. Um, in December of last year was the first time that the Federal Reserve came out and said, you know, all that transitory uh, inflation we've been talking about, well, it's not transitory. So that was a signal to the financial markets that indeed interest rates were going to go up. And in the upper left-hand corner, that's that 30-year mortgage. And you can see as soon as they said that, it went from 3%, and now it's actually closer to 7%. And at the same time, the brown line, existing home sales have fallen 21%. Wow, it's an X. Yeah, so it's a big drop. The chart on the bottom is the same blue line, the mortgage rate, and the brown line is new home sales, down 16%. Upper right-hand corner, same line, uh, same time period, starts in permits down, and then over on the right hand in the bottom is an optimism survey, National Home Builders, way uh, below 50. And in fact, it fell again uh, today. So uh, the housing market is suffering from uh, the Federal Reserve's action. And in addition, if we look at housing prices, in July, they actually fell for the first month in 10 years, in 10 years. So they've gone from this incredible 20.8%. Um, you know, on average, it's been 4%. It was 20.8% turned down to 15.8%. Well, that's great to go from 21% to 16% in the course of a couple of months. But it's 16%, and it's usually 4%. So housing prices are falling rapidly, and that's sort of good, but we don't want to have this bubble burst, if you will. And then in the middle is this chart, which takes into account high mortgage rate and still high prices. It's the affordability index. It is now at the lowest in 33 years. So you can see that housing is, is very difficult to, uh, to come by, to afford now. And then again, over on the right hand is this housing market optimism index. Um, again, dropping sharply this morning. So the housing market is really falling to pieces. And so is the labor market. Now, on the surface, the labor market 
looks fine. It's like the truck's going 80 miles an hour, but it is slowing. It's going 60 and 50 and 40, you know, maybe still going along pretty fast, but slowing. And here's what I mean. Over on the left is the actual job growth rate on a year-over-year basis. Well, in December, it was 4.7%, decelerating to 3.9%. So it's slowing. That's the number of jobs created. Now, tip, you know, I've been getting this question is, okay, we're, you think we're going into a recession. Well, how can that be if we're still creating jobs? And the answer is, that's how it works. And what I mean is the chart in the middle. Each line is a different recession. And each line starts 12 months ahead of the recession. And there in the middle is zero. That's when the recession starts. You don't have to look at each line. But the point is, we go from 12 months right to the recession. All those lines are positive. We're still growing jobs right up until the recession. And that's when we start losing jobs. So it's not unusual to still create jobs right. before the recession. And if I average all those together, that's that blue line. You can see it a little bit more easily. And the brown line is kind of where we are now. So you can see, although it's not exactly the same trajectory, you can see certainly why we can have zero job growth at when the recession starts. One more thing to talk about here. Let me just go straight to it here. There's, uh, there's this <clears throat> survey which shows this huge difference between the number of job openings and the number of job hirings. And there's this, been this huge gap here. That's this blue line in the middle. Well, that gap, which was big, has closed at a 54% annual rate since March. In other words, that big gap where employees had a huge number of jobs and slowing hiring, well, that's slowing even more. It's like they're saying, geez, I see the storm coming. That's falling off. And finally, on the right this is new job postings on the Indeed website, went from 83% down to 55%. It's some technical stuff, but you can see how dramatically it's fallen off. Okay, so we see the housing market and the labor market. Clearly That's a 40% drop in, <clears throat> on the, on the yeah. last one. Yeah, uh, in the course of several months. So that's, that's pretty dramatic. Today we have another guest with us. His name is Zach Elrod and he is with Allianz Trade. We do some business and have in the past. With the market transitioning that we've seen so far this year, the number of bankruptcies that you, know, that you can speak to here in the past few weeks, uh, and where we're headed from an inflation perspective, a fuel cost perspective. We're starting to see a lot higher in frequency, but then we're also starting to notice a lot larger in dollar amounts or unsecured debt that they owe their suppliers. A lot of my clients are experiencing higher AR or credit exposures. And then as this prolongs and goes on, that's becoming more vulnerable and more susceptible to a slow pay claim or a bankruptcy scenario. Here I'm going to start talking about energy. And here is when you're going to stop having me back on the show. Because when I'm, finished, when I'm finished with this, your audience is going to call you and say, never have that guy on again, because he doesn't know what he's talking about. Mm. Um, 
And, uh, you know, I'll pretty safe you. here, Dan. Let me come out and let you know. Um, <laughs> we come for the truth. Okay. <laughs> and the people that, that are watching us or that will watch this, I hope they understand we're, we're not putting a spin on anything. We're, we're the, the spin we put on is real. This is yeah. it. And, and, and that's the value we want to bring our, our viewers. Well, I certainly appreciate that. And that's what I'm going to show you. I mean, you know, it's, you could pick the data, cherry pick the data and make up the story, but uh, you got to see the data for what it is. So let's talk about the energy situation. And it gets back to the simple question first, what drives energy prices? Well, obviously in the long term, it's supply and demand. So the economy shut down in the second quarter of 2020. Crude prices collapsed from $60 a barrel at the end of 2019 to $17 a barrel in April of 2020. So demand and supply both totally collapsed. Well, then there's this huge rebound in the next quarter, I'd sent prices up to $42 a barrel by August. So there's this big demand uh, increase, but you couldn't ramp up supply fast enough. So that's why prices went up rapidly from there. And it's gone up ever since then. So in the long run, supply and demand. And also, for instance, you have supply disruptions like pipeline bursts somewhere or there are refinery outages or a hurricane or wars and geopolitical tensions. You know, we kind of have all of that in some cases here. Right. And then, you know, there's managing inventories, you have investors and traders, they can affect prices, regulations and investment. And then what we've been talking about recently was OPEC production and uh, production cuts and increases. So will the OPEC production cut raise prices? Well, I think the answer is probably not much, if at all. Consider these simple numbers. Global oil production and consumption, about the same, is 100 million barrels a day. That's globally, 100 million barrels a day. By the, by the way, the U.S. is 20 million barrels a day. OPEC came out and said, you know, we're going to cut our production by 2 million barrels a day. We just got asked to raise our production, to get prices down, and like, no, we're not doing that. We're cutting production instead. However, OPEC Plus was already having trouble meeting their targets. So really, they're cutting production by a million barrels a day. They weren't going to make the two million anyways, what you're saying. Correct. Correct. So that's 1% of daily production. And that's likely to get lost in the noise, really likely to get lost in the noise. But I think it's a pretty clear signal um, that to our administration from what they used to call a pariah state. And I think Saudi Arabia is saying, yeah, sure, we're still a pariah as, long, as far as you're concerned. We're, we're cutting production. But I think the long and short of it is I really don't think that that's going to have a big effect. Now, what could lower prices is drawing down the strategic petroleum reserve. In fact, it looks like it may have indeed already lowered gasoline and diesel prices. And that's fine. 
we all like lower fuel price. I have to pay fuel prices as well, so I would like to have lower prices. But there's a big problem with this plan. The SPR was created after the first energy crisis and the Arab oil embargo back in 1973, when we literally could not get oil. There was literally rationing in 1973 and 79. The SPR was meant for a supply crisis, not a price crisis. You can see these pictures here. Maybe a lot of your uh, people that are going to tune in may uh, uh, remember this. Gas lines here, rationing here where, you know, uh, I remember you could get gas if your license plate ended in an odd number or an even number. Middle or your last name was A through L or M through Z. Yeah, yeah. And here's a lot of this poor guy pushing his his, uh, his lawnmower. So after that, the government said we're never going to get caught that way again. We're going to build up this reserve uh, so that we're protected against that sort of thing. Good idea. Now we're in this current plan. It releases five percent of consumption a day. All right, and that's going to draw it down by 32%, and that's going to leave it at the lowest level in 38 years. Now, now is the time in this geopolitical uncertainty, you want a bigger reserve, not a smaller one. Correct. It's not meant to lower prices. It's meant as a strategic defensive reserve uh, for the defense of our, our country's energy supply. So I think it's uh, an ill thought out. It's clearly a move that is meant to lower prices. It may indeed be having some effect, but I'm not so sure that it's the best move. I think it's robbing Peter to pay Paul. Right. Eventually, we're going to have to buy it back. So when we're going to have to beg, make big purchases to refill that reserve, well, that's likely to drive prices back up. In the meantime, we're in a riskier Continue watching on the next episode of the Stay in Your Lane podcast.